All right. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 once again. Matthew chapter 5. In just a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 33. But perhaps you've noticed that we don't live in a terribly honest world. Uh, it does not take a, an eagle eye to, uh, to catch that. Uh, in fact, it's very natural um, to us to live with a certain amount of skepticism about man's trustworthiness. In fact, it's even important that we do that or we'll find ourselves being taken advantage of all over the place. So whether you're buying something off of Marketplace or Kijiji or you're taking your vehicle to the mechanic or you're listening to a politician open their mouth uh, or you're reading a news story. Uh, we're used to questioning the things that we're hearing. We're very accustomed to operating in an untrustworthy world and we learn over time to ask the right questions so that we're not taken advantage of wherever we go. And in fact, it even stands out as being incredibly remarkable when we run into somebody who deals with us in a very honest and upright, forthright manner. And we tell our friends about that particular business because it's, it stands out so much. We are forever fixing our signatures to different documents in part because people will agree to something in one moment. Those terms seem good only to deny it in the next and try to get out of it. Um, large corporations and large stores, they understand that people are not honest and they will return all kinds of crazy items with obviously made up stories and they just understand this is how it works. Rather than fight it all, they just have a policy that will re return basically anything for any reason and that's just part of the cost of doing business. It's cheaper and easier than fighting with everybody who comes in with some ridiculous story. I even read of one this week where a guy returned a $200 steak to Costco with just bones and fat, and um, and it was approved. This employee said it was it was approved. Um, so rather than fight it, we just understand there are some who are going to be even that unashamedly dishonest, and we just live with it. It's just the cost of, of doing business. As I said, we're very used to operating in such an environment, and we can lose sight of just how aberrant it is to be dishonest, just how sinful and egregious it is to be a liar, to be untruthful. Ours is a deceptive world. It has been so ever since the fall, and it is aggravating. As much as we get used to it, it is still, I mean, how frustrating and annoying is it that we have to deal with these, these kinds of things on a constant, uh, regular basis? And it would seem that now, in our current moment, distrust of one another in society is about as, maybe as bad as it has been, at least in my lifetime, and, and for good reason. It seems we are incredibly dishonest people. It is frustrating to rarely be confident that what we're being told is the truth. We have to constantly wonder, what am I not being told in this article I'm reading? What is this salesman not telling me? Being a truthful and honest person is such a basic concept, and yet it is, frankly, very foreign 
to many. And if we consider God's standard of righteousness, once again, we cannot simply be those who return only unopened items with the receipt and then consider ourselves to be righteous. There's more to it than just that. Being a truthful person goes deeper, and this should be no surprise to us at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. There are all kinds of subtle and maybe seemingly insignificant ways that we might twist and obscure truth. Uh, Maybe it's so that we might save face in a given moment, to not look as bad to someone, to appear maybe better than we are, and so on. And the bar in our society is set so incredibly low when it comes to being truthful and honest. And so again, it's imperative and crucial that we come to God's word to hear what our Lord says about this. And so let's pick up in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Our Lord continues his teaching. It was also said, sorry, that's 31, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So we have in these verses another illustration of true righteousness, the true righteousness that Christ's disciples are to hunger and thirst for. Jesus raises this matter of oaths to point us to the fact that righteousness involves being a truthful and honest person. And he does this as he exposes the kind of games that men play when it comes to the truth. So let's begin with looking at oaths in the Old Testament. It's the first point of the outline, oaths in the Old Testament. In verse 33, Jesus begins saying, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, or perform to the Lord your oath. This is not a direct quote of the Old Testament. But it is a summary of various Old Testament teachings on this matter of taking an oath. So Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, says this, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then in Deuteronomy 6.13, Moses writes, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So taking an oath in the Old Testament was a serious matter. It was a solemn matter. Uh, oaths and vows, we read both of these things. These are... are um, are very similar matters, and they're both, I think, in view in Matthew chapter 5. A vow would be making a promise to do something or to not do something. And an oath uh, is, is uh, the act whereby a person invokes God as a witness to show the truthfulness of what is being said. 
Whether it's to, to show the seriousness of the vow, vowing to do something in the name of the Lord, or whether the oath is, is seeking to show the truthfulness of one's testimony, say in a court or something like that. So the very reason that oaths were necessary and are even part of this world at all is precisely what I described in the opening of the sermon, that mankind is a dishonest bunch. We are liars. We have this tendency to swear falsely, to speak falsely. And so when someone invokes God's name and takes an oath or a vow in his name, they are inviting essentially God's curse upon them and discipline upon them if they fail to live up to it or if they're then proven to be a liar. That's why it's a solemn matter. You're declaring with your mouth, I understand God testifies against me in this matter if I am said to be, if I'm shown to be out of uh, not keeping the truth or not keeping my word or speaking what is true. It stops and acknowledges that we live before the Almighty and that he is invoked then as the all-seeing, all-knowing witness. Again, it's tied even in Deuteronomy 6.13, which I read, to the fear of the Lord. It's the Lord you're to fear. So when you invoke his name in something, you're recognizing you're answerable to him. And we know that he sees and understands all. So that's something that is only to be done with great solemnity. And it shows one another that you take this seriously. It is designed to show other people and remind others of the commitment. Should a vower break their vow, an oath bearer break their oath, those affected by it, who are let down by it, would know that God would punish this person. Even if it's a secret to others, the Lord himself knows. This is a safeguard. Again, the whole reason that oaths exist in the first place is because of man's dishonesty, untrustworthiness. In the Old Testament, oaths are often connected to worship and were never to be undertaken lightly. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and grow, uh, words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Again, connected to the fear of God there. So Jesus' words here in verse 33, where he says, You shall not swear falsely, that is, you shall not make a vow or oath that you don't intend to keep, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is a fair summary of the Old Testament teaching. If you take an oath to do something, you vow to do something, you do it, period. If you're not planning to, do not vow. An oath is a serious matter. So that's, that's oaths in the Old Testament. But Jesus goes on in verse 34 to offer a rebuke. The second point is this rebuke. So look at verse 34 again. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, although it may sound like it, 
I do not think Jesus is prohibiting every single instance of oath-taking. And hopefully my reasons for that will uh, become clear as we go, and I will explicitly address that a little more later. As we've seen in, in previous weeks, and it's still true here, Jesus is not overturning the law or the Old Testament teaching. He's not correcting the law, but he's giving correction to the way the law was understood, taught, and practiced in his day. The same thing is true here as it has been in the previous uh, illustrations we've looked at, lust, divorce, etc. In Jesus' time, during the time of his incarnation, there were various types of oaths where you could swear by different things and they had a very sophisticated and suspect reasoning that was employed in order to determine how serious a particular vow was, whether or not that type could be broken or not. You could swear by various objects, various things, and the seriousness of the oath depended on how close that object was to God himself and to God's name. And this whole matter, I think, becomes very clear in Matthew chapter 23. If you want to flip over to there, Matthew 23, verse 16. It's a place, again, where Jesus is very explicitly uh, condemning the scribes and Pharisees, pronouncing woes upon them. And so in Matthew 23, 16, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift greater? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So here, again, we find very explicitly this game, if you will, that the scribes and Pharisees played with vows and with truth and with oaths. Some oaths could be broken, no problem. But others couldn't. And this is the practice that is behind Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, they were called to swear, as we saw in Deuteronomy 6. They were called to swear by God's name. But now they swear by all these different things, and they all have different levels of severity. They're still serious. They're still important matters, the altar and so on. But they're a little removed from God, and so it's okay to break those vows. It's not as binding as if you were to vow in the name of the Lord. But as we read, Jesus blows that up in chapter 23. You swear by the heavens. You swear by the God who dwells there in the temple, the God who dwells in the temple. So again, if you look at verse, well, it's before we do that. Jesus, say, what Jesus is saying here is if you are going to play those kinds of games with your truthfulness and with swearing an oath, don't even take an oath. Better not to even open your mouth. That's what he's getting at. So again, I just want to read these verses again. Verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair 
white or black. Again, the purpose here is evidently you think that you are lessening your commitment by swearing by these different items, by these different things, but everything you swear by is still connected to God in some way. The heavens are his throne. The temple is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And the great king there probably refers to Yahweh himself, the Lord himself. Maybe it's pointing to Christ, uh, the king, uh, the, the Messiah, who is king over the kingdom of God. But his Jerusalem is his city. It's the Lord's city. Even the head is under God's authority. It is he who decides your hair color. Ultimately, he is sovereign over this. Even our dying hair, if you think about it, it doesn't permanently change anything, does it? It doesn't actually change the color of one's hair. When it grows out, you see that. His point is, all of this comes under God, and if you want to play games by swearing by one thing or another in order to avoid swearing by the Lord's name, then you're in the wrong. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus insists that whatever a man swears by is related to God in some way, and therefore every oath is implicitly in God's name. In other words, there's really no difference for what they were doing. You're not off the hook with this game you play. You swear by the altar, that doesn't mean you, you're at, you don't have to keep your word now. That being a liar is suddenly now okay. And so Jesus is saying, do not swear at all if this is how you're going to play. Now to us, for whom we're not continually maybe swearing oaths and vowing vows before the Lord, well, this might seem a little bit weird. And we don't have this kind of system of evaluation, the exact same thing as the Pharisees and scribes did, as was common in Jesus' day as he is, was speaking these words. However, we still do similar things. We create our own system by which we may or may not be bound to the things that we say. We commit to something, but we say things like, well, I never promised I would do it. We have this whole category of a promise now. It's very similar. I promise I will do it. Well, now that means that he really will do it. Well, I said I would do it, yes, but I never promised. And so, as kids, we'd cross fingers behind your back when you'd say something. Well, it didn't count. I crossed my fingers, so I didn't have to tell the truth. We play games in other ways. We say things like maybe, when really what we're thinking is not a chance. We try to get by on technicalities all the time. Well, it's not, it wasn't technically a lie. We phrase things and words, word things in such a way that if we're called on it, we can technically hopefully get out of it. We fail to follow through on the thing we did and we try to lessen the blow to the person we've let down by exaggerating our busyness or exaggerating the reasons for our failure when we know ultimately we just didn't do it. We just didn't prioritize it. I'm sure there's probably a thousand more ways that we might try to do this. Ways we try to cover for our lack of straightforward truth talking. Our lack of following through on what we'll say we'll do. We are good at creating ways to make dishonesty really not seem that bad. This is precisely what this whole oath business was 
that the scribes and Pharisees were doing. You see, they had it set up so that they could get away with not being completely truthful and still maintain that they were righteous. And so verse 37 now, we get to the call to truthfulness. It's the final point, the call to truthfulness. Verse 37 provides the principle undergirding Christ's call to not swear oaths. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is again pointing us to God's revealed will for mankind, that we simply be truthful people, that we say what we mean and we don't swear falsely. The impulse to go beyond that to skirt the truth on technicalities or whatever it might be. This has its roots in evil. The word evil has the definite article attached to it, so it could be translated as anything more comes from the evil one, that is the devil. Of course, elsewhere we know Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. This would make a lot of sense if, it was, if he's saying comes from the evil one. Either way, when we start to get into games and justify lies and false promises and misleading half-truths, its root is in evil. True righteousness involves letting our yes be yes and our no be no. We are called to be honest, truthful, and reliable people. We should not have to undergird our words and our claims and our statements with vows and with oaths. It shouldn't be necessary. If I say to you, yes, that should be enough. That's the whole point. The whole reason oaths exist, again, in the first place, is because of man's dishonesty. And so true righteousness is concerned with the root matter, namely being a truthful and honest person. It's not about just being able to tell artful lies and be creative with the truth that's missing the point god delights in truth so as christians then we cannot merely be concerned with having the appearance of being honest and truthful but our concern is to be with actually being honest and truthful Ephesians 4, 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Again, that's addressing Christians within the church. They're members of one another, the call to speaking truth with one another. And so it's good to examine ourselves. Are you a truthful person? Do you speak truthfully? Or are you good at avoiding the truth? good at telling artful lies for whatever end satisfying yourself that technically you're not really lying it's not a really bad one you're not as bad as others as we read again in earlier from deuteronomy 6 and ecclesiastes 5 it is important to remember in this matter the fear of the lord oath taking was combined with the fear of the lord in both of those verses we read it is before God that we live. We speak whenever we speak in his presence. We may fool others, but we will never fool him. 
And this is key to being a truthful person. Right? Seeking a clear conscience before God who calls for truthfulness. Again, we might wonder, does this say that we may never swear an oath? Some have concluded that this is what Jesus is saying, that oaths altogether are never more to be taken by believers. However, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, Any more than, as we'll see next week, I don't think next week's text is telling us we can never say no to anybody. There, We're going to talk about uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Um, turning the other cheek. We'll get to that next time. I'm going to jump the gun, but I don't think those are saying there's never a chance, uh, a place to defend yourself or to say no or to resist the evil man. I don't think what Jesus is saying here in these verses is that every single oath is wrong. As I have said, Jesus is correcting the abuse of oath-taking, this legalistic and hierarchical structure of oaths that makes a mockery of truth and integrity. He's saying, stop. He's saying, don't take oaths at all if that's the way you're going to treat this. This was never the intention of taking an oath, of vows. So don't swear oaths at all. Rather, be a truthful person. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I think James 5, which says a very similar teaching, verse 12, is getting at the same basic thing. Be a truthful person. Don't rely upon oath swearing. Moreover, we do see vows and oaths and oath formulas, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Paul used this kind of oath language in a number of places. One example is 2 Corinthians 1.23. He said, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. That's an oath-like statement, calling God as witness to say I'm, I am, I am, what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. God is my witness. In Acts 18, 18, we see Paul was under some sort of a vow, which led him in that moment to get a haircut. We're not told a whole lot more about that particular vow, but he was under a vow. Moreover, Matthew 26, 63 is often cited as evidence that Jesus himself responded under oath when questioned by the high priest. So this is Matthew 26, 63. Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So he puts him under oath before God. Are you the, are you the son? Are you the, uh, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus does respond. He answers, You will see me at the right hand of power. Jesus has testified the truthfulness of this, and that is enough to secure his, the guilty verdict that he has testified under oath. Of course, the high priest does not believe him, and so he considers this blasphemy. Moreover, God himself has told us that he has sworn an oath. In the case of God, when God swears an oath and makes promises, it is not because he is untrustworthy, so it's different than when a man swears an oath. Uh, Rather, it is because we have a hard time believing him. 
we tend to not trust the word of God when he speaks. And so it is his way of accommodating himself to us and assuring us that indeed these things will come to pass. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, there is no more truthful person than God Almighty, no no more truthful being than God Almighty. And yet he himself swears this by an oath that we might be that much more confident in the salvation that is in Christ. And so I don't think Jesus is saying that any and every oath is unlawful. But again, Jesus is reminding us of what it is that the law ultimately is pointing toward, the importance of being truthful people. Oaths are for rare and solemn occasions. They're not meant to govern everyday life and every time we make a statement, essentially. One other question that might arise as we think of being honest and truthful people is the question of whether it is ever permissible to tell a lie. If it is ever permissible to tell anything other than the entire truth. We can certainly think of instances where it would even seem right to maybe not tell the truth. And I hesitate to even raise this question or objection because of how it could be abused. But I think it's important to at least give it some consideration. And again, just a reminder, as we, last week, as we were talking about the matter of divorce, if, if we are approaching these things looking for outs, if our immediate thing is, well, where, where's the line where I can now be, you know, not telling the truth and it's okay. Uh, if that's what we're, we're trying, if that's where we automatically go, if that's what we're trying, then I, I think we're, we're missing the point here. I don't think that's a good sign. That's more what the Pharisees were doing. Nevertheless, this is a a valid question to ask. And I think it's worth it because as we talk about being truthful, the importance of being truthful, I think this is important to to give it some thought. There are some texts to consider. Obviously think of the book of Exodus and the Hebrew midwives who were told they were to kill the the, um, Israelite boys that were born and they chose not to. They defied Pharaoh's orders. And they were later commended by the Lord. You think of Rahab. She gave the spies who went into Canaan uh, shelter, spies in Jericho. And she misled the men who came to look for them. She knew they would come, most likely to kill them. And she misled those men and sent the Israelites back to Joshua. Her faith in Hebrews chapter 11 is commended 
She was motivated in this by faith. On the basis of those texts, I'm convinced that there are times when bad faith actors, wicked men, do not warrant the truth. But I'd also note that in those two examples, they involve life and death. They involve serious matter of life and death of other people. It's not even just mere self-preservation. So we have questions that arise. Can a missionary in a hostile country be less than forthcoming about his real purposes when he's seeking to gain entry into that country? This is a a real thing, a, a real issue that goes on all around the world today. When they show up to customs, must they tell the whole truth of everything they're there to do? Many go under visas for other reasons. They go to take a job doing something else, but their real reason for being there is to share the gospel with others. Can we smuggle Bibles into countries that don't want them? Into restricted nations whose governments hate God? I'm not going to attempt to answer all of the questions here or draw all the lines, but I raise this simply because as we think about being a truthful person, I'm not convinced this text is saying that Christians in, say, Nazi Germany had to disclose the Jews they may have been hiding in their basement to the authorities when they arrived. Additionally, Jesus did not answer every question directly when he was asked questions. We're told that there's a time to not answer the fool in Proverbs. We're warned even about casting pearls before swine. In scripture, there were times Jesus refused to answer questions from bad faith questioners. So I think there is still a category of wisdom to be employed. It doesn't mean we always have to say everything there is to say about a subject in order to be an honest and truthful person. Our text is not dealing with extreme situations, but it's dealing with everyday life. It's dealing with the kind of character and person that you are. Are you a person who is honest? Are you a person who tells the truth, whose yes means yes and whose no means no? This is what we are called to live as honest, truthful people. We are not looking to ram exceptions through so we can be deceitful. We are those who seek to make our yes, yes, and our no, no. And again, as we think about even the very matter of of the Great Commission and of preaching the gospel, a number of places Paul has to say very clearly and, and reveals to us that what they're doing is he's not like so many who are peddlers of God's word. His, his, his message does not spring from error or, dece- or any attempt to deceive in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He was about straightforward proclamation of the gospel. He wasn't trying to hide it or sneak it in the back door, but to speak plainly and speak truthfully. So as we think about this whole matter of truthfulness and Again, as we consider throughout the Sermon on the Mount, these areas in which Jesus is addressing true righteousness, it is going to expose us to our sins. The reality is we are all part of this fallen world, and we are 
according to our fallen nature, dishonest people. We are liars. Nobody measures up to the standard of truthfulness and honesty that Jesus points us to. Nobody that is except for, of course, himself. Not only did Jesus walk the earth in perfect integrity and honesty, but he declared to all that he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So let us examine our hearts. Give consideration to where it is you might play games with the truth. Or where it is you might just fudge on it a little bit. Where you know perhaps you ought not to. Where you're just trying to make yourself maybe look not as bad. Or any area where you might seek to deceive others for whatever reasons. Again, others may not see it. But we know that true righteousness is a matter of the heart. Not merely external technicalities. And so, as you become aware and convicted... Of course, as always, you confess your sins to God. You remember the one who is the truth, who died for liars and rose again from the dead. He is a good savior. He has fulfilled the law's demands on behalf of all who trust in him. And so trust in him, rest in him. And let us hear again the goodness of the law of the Lord and seek after true righteousness as those who are living under God's grace in a world of deception, in a world that is filled with deceit and deceivers. Let us seek to be those who are reliable, those who are upright, those who are honest, those who will speak truth with our neighbors and who will do so in love. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, We are thankful that you have given us the truth of your word. That you are true. That there is no falseness, there is no lying, there is no deception in you. And God, we realize that we fall short of this. And we are aware that there are different ways that we can play games with the truth and still try to pass ourselves off, satisfy our own conscience that we are indeed being truthful. Father, wherever we might be in sin, I pray that you would gently convict us, that you would remind us of the goodness of being truthful and honest. Father, forgive us where we've sinned in these areas. I pray that you would give us grace to speak the truth, to do so in love with one another here in our church and wherever we have opportunity. Father, that we would likewise speak the truth of the gospel as we have opportunity and and let the response and reactions just to leave them in your hands. Father, I pray that we would not be those who are cowed into silence in anything, by a threatening world, but that we would speak truth and that it would be our desire and goal to bring truth back to your word and to the gospel. Father, we know that the hope of mankind is indeed Christ.
only the new heart can take a sinner and give them a desire to be truthful, a desire to be righteous. We pray that you would pour out your spirit, that you would yet draw many more sinners to yourself. Father, again, we, we agree with your word that lies and deception are evil. We lament where we take part in this and we ask you to be gracious, to sanctify us, help us to delight in truth. We pray that you would be honored in this. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.